Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm sitting entirely too low right now. My name is Matt. Pump up that chair, Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant, who just returned from Mysterious Adventures. Thanks for coming back, Paul. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. So, how's everybody doing today before we, we get into this? I, I spoke with Mission Control a little bit before we went back on the air, asked him if he was okay. He gave me a thumbs up. Uh, Paul, we still on thumbs up status? Okay. Just for, just for the record, yeah. we, we re-recorded this intro, so I don't know how many times we can ask Paul to give me a thumbs up I mean, he's tired of it. How many times has this happened? Right, I mean, infinite number of times, right? What and all the time? iterations. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to tell you guys, I for the first time put some glow in the dark planets up above the ceiling where where my son sleeps, mm-hmm. and I did that yesterday. And the one thing that's missing from that, it's got all the planets. Pluto's not included, remember? Mm, right. Uh, but it does not have the moon. It doesn't have the moon. There's a really cool moon globe you can get, and there's also a glow in the dark 
three-dimensional moon sphere we could get for him. That one is really awesome, and I'm looking to get that one day. <laughs> A day that doesn't break the bank? Yeah, because th- these things were real, real cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get one of those cool starry night projector things that you just put like on the floor, and it just projects this cool galaxy onto the ceiling all around your room. And I'm 35, <laughs> so uh, I'm into stuff like that. <laughs> That actually sounds amazing. Yeah, I love night projections. I have I have some stuff like that at my uh, the place where I currently live. They're using my other residence. <laughs> uh, yes, a place where I live, which is a real place. How are things going where you live? What do you think about space exploration? Today we're exploring a strange story about the moon, and we'd like to hear from you. So if the spirit so moves you while you listen to today's show, feel free to pause it. We'll be here when you get back. And give us a call with your thoughts directly, your visceral hot takes, your off-the-cuff stuff that you wouldn't say to anyone other than us and your fellow listeners. Or like a machine facsimile of us. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, your innermost thoughts. Mm-hmm. Spill them. Yeah, along with your social security number, a <laughs> list of your fears, your blood type. But really, we, we need your innermost thoughts to, to fuel our machine, but our infernal machine we've created here. Try to keep them limited to the three-minute mark, right? Yeah, if, if, you know, if you want to. Or just leave a bunch of messages. That's fine. That's Matt's favorite thing when you uh, hit our call-in line and leave <laughs> 15 messages because uh, he gets a notification. Yeah. We, we mentioned one person, I think, on the last episode, Ben. Mm. That, that person hasn't called back again yet. Maybe she knew we were talking about her, you know, fourth dimensionally. Jennifer, right? I Maybe. Feel free to keep calling, Jennifer. Uh, But if you want to take a page out of Jennifer's book and share some information with your fellow listeners, you're probably wondering if you just pick up the phone and start talking. Almost. You have to hit a a numerical code first. Yes, that's 1-833-STDWYTK. That's just stuff they don't want you to know. Every time we say that number, it feels like there's going to be an AM radio talk show tag on where it's like, in the morning. Down the moon. <laughs> yes. Yes, the moon. We have been there, not the four of us personally, and uh, odds are not most of us listening, but our species has. It's pretty easy to prove this is the case. However, it is completely, absolutely understandable, I would argue, that folks could be skeptical about this claim. After all, the timeline's really weird. Yeah. So our entire species, out of everybody, our entire species, one country landed people on the moon, and they only did it six times. And they only did it between 1969 to 1972, at which point they just stopped. Yeah, for no reason other than it's really, really expensive, and there's not much going on up there. Officially, right. It's pretty. It's pretty dangerous, right? And it's mm-hmm. a dangerous expedition. One of the most dangerous trips those people would have ever taken in their lives. Today's episode is about the idea that we did not stop going to the moon. So, and, and that perhaps yeah. our the reason we went up there was not what was told to the public in the world. Exactly. Exactly. So to to get. To get our our heads around this, first we have to start with the facts. So here they are. And side note, uh, we would love to hear any we'd love to hear any counter arguments 
about this because I'm certain that some of us listening as soon as they heard me say, yeah, we went to the moon. And it's pretty easy. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's to show that we got there. Yes, we will We will have some examples uh, or some arguments for why that is the case, and we want to hear your arguments against it. So, boom, we're back in the 1950s. This is the moon, what we did and how we did it. It's 1950s. The United States is locked in a race with the Soviet Union for domination over everything, especially space. The new frontier. And, you know, this is all just more Cold War stuff after uh, we, we, as in the Soviet Union and the United States, were victorious during World War II. We're trying to figure out who is the superpower. And then on January 2nd, 1959, there's this thing called the Soviet Luna 1 spacecraft, and it made the first official flyby of the moon at a distance of 3,725 miles, that's 5,994 kilometers, from the moon's surface. So it's that far away from the moon, but again, this is a huge achievement because it's the first time we've ever gotten a piece of human machinery that far out to the moon and then successfully essentially looked at it mm-hmm. with, with a piece of of technology that we created. On September 12th, 1959, they landed the second lunar mission. Mm -hmm. And it's strange because the way you'll hear that described is they impacted the moon. Yeah. Which we have to remember for the time, it was a really big and amazing deal just to be able to hit that moving target. Oh, yeah. That, that's amazing. The the math involved is so far beyond my com- comprehension that uh, it's crazy that they could even attempt to do it. And then on May 25th, 1961, severely freaked out by, <laughs> by the success of the USSR, uh, President John F. Kennedy issues a challenge in his speech to Congress when he says, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieve the goal before this decade is out, I've landed a man on the moon and returned him safely to Earth. And see, that was right after one of Dr. Feelgood's injections of what we now know was methamphetamines. Is that right? Yes. Kennedy? Uh, <laughs> yes. Is that what made him talk like that? <laughs> it was all. It was exactly what it was. No, it was yeah, less yeah, the yeah. accent and just more of the um, the energy, the path. Let's go to the moon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was already there. He was already on the moon, looking looking down. They were like, "Sir, income inequality remains a problem. Uh, the nation is embroiled in racial disparity and tension." And he's like, "The moon, yeah, the moon." <laughs> and also, where's the doctor? Where's the die? Call Marilyn. Uh, yes, this leads to a series of things. We're going to walk through them pretty quickly. Before we had the Apollo program, we had something called the U.S. Ranger program. This ran from 61 to 65. It sent nine missions to the moon. There were no people on them. This was all machinery. In 62, uh, the Ranger 4 reached the lunar surface, but it impacted. It crashed, and it wasn't able to send any data back. So we just managed to make a very expensive bullet, essentially. Yeah, and a small crater. Mm -hmm. But hey, congratulations, we had an impact, right? That's how it would be written in some kind of uh, board room where they're having, hey, look, we made an impact. We made an impact. (laughs) We literally made an impact. Two years later, Ranger 7 captures and sends back 4,000 photos of the moon before it hits the surface and also goes kaput. (laughs) The, The next big step was to land something Without crashing. Yes, good idea. 
Um, again, much more difficult than you could ever imagine. Um, however, here's the thing. The Soviets, again, like they did before, beat us out, the Americans, of course, by touching down the Luna 9. So they're at the ninth iteration of the Luna at this point on February 3rd, 1966. But the, here's the thing, though. The American side, again, of this Cold War, we weren't very far behind. The Surveyor 1 mission, this is a, a new uh, craft or new, uh, I guess, part of the program, it made a controlled landing on the moon about three months later. So here we are, 1966, both the Soviets and the United States have landed things successfully there. And this all leads up to the big ticket item, the big tent, right? The big temple, the milestone of lunar exploration, which is landing a spacecraft with people on it on the lunar surface. And hopefully getting them back to Earth somehow. Well, let's not be hasty. <laughs> let's not be hasty. One step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. It's kind of like Gattaca, you know? How far are you going to get if you spend all, if you save all your energy for the swim back? You're right. This was way before Gattaca, but it's a good film. All these steps were leading to this. And it was a bloody path. It was not a situation where it's all angel farts and trumpets and harps and stuff. Tragedy struck during a test on January 27, 1967. A fire swept through the Apollo command module, killing three astronauts. And NASA named the test Apollo 1 to honor the crew. And then we get to the manned lunar landings. They all take place again between 1969 and 1972. They're all part of the Apollo program. They all come from the U.S. The most popular one, the one that changed history forever, was the July 20th, 1969 moon landing when Neil Armstrong and longtime friend of the show, Buzz, Dr. Rendezvous Aldrin, land on the lunar surface. It's followed by five other crewed missions. The astronauts who first touch on the moon's surface have to go way out of the way. This is, this is so dangerous. They have to travel 383,000 kilometers, roughly, just to reach the moon. They have to survive landing. They have to survive being on the moon. They have to make it. They have to, like, take off from the moon. They have to take off from the moon, which people forget. Yeah. Forget. And then they have to make it back to Earth, preferably alive. You miss a step. They got a rendezvous after taking off from the moon with the other spacecraft that's going around the moon, right? dock successfully, then make it back. That's a good point. So you can see just from all the, um, all the dangers involved there why people would be skeptical, especially when, again, the argument is that there are so many problems on this planet that we can solve through mundane means. You know, why are we, why are we sending just six missions to the moon and quitting? Why do we quit? Right. So there have been tons and tons of uncrewed landings, which persist in the modern day. And as you can imagine, it's way less risky, way less expensive. And now we get to the question of how we know that we, being humanity, got there some way. There are a number of ways to prove human beings visited the moon. First, we have pieces of it, literal pieces of it. It's illegal for us to buy them because we're apparently not cool enough but thanks for writing back, NASA. <laughs> but humanity has them. Have you guys ever seen that that movie, Apollo 18? I have not. It, is that the same as Apollo 13? The Hanks, the it's Hanks almost, one? almost the same thing. It's just like five missions later. Five more. 
So, so Apollo 17 is the last manned mission to the moon that occurred. Mm-hmm. This one is about the next one and what they find. And uh, less spoiler alert, there's some naughty moon rocks up there. That's all I'll say. Naughty moon rocks. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so endearing when you describe <laughs> stuff as naughty. Yeah, moon, moon rocks is like a, a weed thing. Oh, it is? Yeah, it's like some really concentrated like – Weed thing. Oh, really? well, I hear it in rap songs. I only know that's what. <laughs> oh, okay, well, it's not that. Okay, but but anyway, watch or it. Is it? Yeah. So astronauts working for NASA brought back about eight hundred and forty-two pounds of moon rocks, uh, rocks from the lunar surface for scientists to study. Although it would be great if it were eight hundred and forty-two pounds of marijuana that they brought back. The thing about these rocks is the oldest. The oldest ones are 4.5 billion years old, which makes them 200 million years older than the oldest rocks on Earth. Whoa. So it's a pretty good argument. You could also say, well, maybe they just collected 842 pounds of meteorites that landed on Earth. But the, the moon rocks have characteristics that are unique to them. And then there's the there's the other idea, uh, which is that you can see stuff reflected on the moon. You can see the retroflectors. You can see the flag, which is still there, which is a little gauche on our part, but how inspiring. Anyhow, these are just some of the things that you can see on the moon. And so far, in 2019, this is the official narrative, at least the very broad strokes of our species' collective quest to reach the moon. But what if? There's more to the story. Yeah, what if instead of faking the moon landing the way uh, so many of us at least have pondered, um, what if there's more to the mission than what the public had been led to believe? What if we had a whole other ulterior motive just by even imagining going up to the moon? And what if we did something crazy? Well, we'll explore that concept when we get back from a quick sponsor break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainor, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Here's where it gets crazy. We absolutely plan more stuff. By we, at this point, we don't mean the human species. We mean the U.S. government. We planned a ton of very strange things. We did not tell anyone uh, we would like to reveal one of those plans on the air today, something called Project Horizon. All the way back in 1958 or 59, um, 10 or so, 10 or more years before the first lunar landing, Uncle Sam was already planning to build a permanent lunar base. They listed the requirements like this. So here's the quote. Um, the lunar outpost is required to develop and protect potential United States interests on the moon, to develop techniques in moon-based surveillance of the Earth and space, in communications relay, and in operations on the surface of the moon, to serve as a base for exploration of the moon, uh, for future exploration into space, and for military operations on the moon if required, and to support scientific investigation on the moon. What? Very, very moon-based document here. Well, yeah. But again, we're talking about having a military uh, – like a ready-to-go military outpost on the moon in 1958. Jeez. I mean that's like a pretty big leap. But I guess any time we're conquering anything, we're doing it for military purposes, right? Like why bother sending humans to the moon just so we can have the bragging rights if we're not going to actually use it to blow people up in some way, right? I, mean, I, I guess so. And, and just to give you a little background mm-hmm. on what we're reading from, this is an unclassified secret document that we found on history.army.mil. It's entitled Project Horizon, Volume 1, Summary and Supporting Consideration. And uh, we we have a little more about the background of this project. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know a lot of us are titillated by the uh, 
the titling there. Yeah. If you are, if you are still awake after hearing that title, uh, this was the brainchild of a Lieutenant General Arthur G. Trudeau, who was the U.S. Army's Chief of Research and Development. The project had two components. First, the publicly acknowledged idea, which is very, very Star Trek, very post-scarcity economy. That's exactly what it is. To boldly go where no one has gone before, to explore space for the betterment of mankind, to develop new and better technology. Again, for the betterment of mankind. Right, right, right. To explore strange new places, right? (laughs) Uh, But below the surface, the true purpose of Project Horizon and many similar projects in the, you know, the secret thing. What people said when all the doors were closed and the monitors were turned off was to create a situation where they could have military superiority in the Cold War, military superiority in space through, uh, through nuclear weaponry. They weren't going to just put people on the moon. They wanted to put nukes there. By permanently occupying the moon and more importantly, by getting there before Soviet forces did, the U.S. could say, we own this now. And the moon and all that it holds or any use that it has is now ours. And this could be, this could be useful on a multitude of fronts. First, you have – in many ways, you have the potential for uh, an obscene level of air superiority. Oh, yeah. You can also restrict space from – you can restrict anyone from accessing space. Yeah, that's huge. You've got a, a moon base on that thing that's just looming over the planet at all times. You're, you can observe anything that the moon can see, you can then see, right? Mm. Which is a little difficult to plan for. Well, I guess not really. You could, you could do all of your uh, all of your research somehow. I don't know, underground or outside of the mu- the moon's view somehow. Right, radiation shielding would have to be a big part. You <laughs> yeah. could uh, you could also, for example, make a tremendous amount of money because you would have a monopoly on lunar travel. There you go. And millionaires existed back in the in the fifties as well as the sixties. So it's quite conceivable that they would pay any price to get to the moon if they were allowed to. The army could also have massive, massive surveillance capabilities. There would be no such thing as a secret area of the USSR unless it was buried deep, but even then you could see it being constructed. I mean, it just feels like there wouldn't be as much of a space race kind of situation if there wasn't some military angle at play, right? Right. I mean, it seems like any time that the U.S. is like, oh, we better catch up with the Russians because they don't want the Russians to have the upper hand. It's less of a reputation thing and to me it seems like more of like a strategic thing. Well, yeah. I mean think about this last bit that we were talking about, the nukes. Mm-hmm. If you had nukes on the lunar surface so they could be launched, let's say with a dead man's hand kind of situation where if Washington, D.C. gets attacked, if New York gets attacked, if all of it gets wiped off the face of the earth through Soviet missiles – then there are still lunar nukes coming at you, right? No matter, no matter what you do to the United States mainland or any of its other outposts, there still will be nukes on the way. They might take a while, but they're headed your direction. That's a, I mean, that's a very, very good point because even if every single part of the U.S. security structure is disabled, they're going to have a tough time hitting the moon, right? 
You can also vastly improve radio communications, at least for the time. So it's clear that we can see this. It's clear that it has advantages, and I enjoy what you pointed out, Noel, which is I, I would say not just any endeavor like this, but all all wars and expansions are about controlling resource and access, you know. So it's not out of the goodness of their hearts that they plan this. The Pentagon said, okay, let's – Let's think about this. Let's figure it out. So they turned Project Horizon over to one of the only people they felt qualified to study its feasibility. A person will be familiar to many of our longtime listeners today. That is Werner von Braun. Yeah, so the Pentagon um, turned Project Horizon over to Werner von Braun. And at this point, he was the head of the U.S. Army Ballistic Missile Agency, or ABMA. Personal favorite. It's almost ABBA. Yeah. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, but Von Braun um, was able to uh, assign the study uh, to one of his German colleagues who also had been brought to the United States as part of Operation Paperclip, which we've discussed on the show. I think it's one of your personal favorites, Matt, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I, I hopefully it's a show favorite because it's just one of those weird things in history that occurred that we don't like to think about. Really happened. Quick, yeah. quick, quick, <laughs> yeah. quick little summary. Uh, Germany's – one of Germany's uh, most important and least known at the time, popular exports post-World War II uh, was former Nazi scientist. Yeah, mines. Great mines that put together the technology that was used to overcome most of the rest of the world's military might. The U.S. got them and Russia got them too. They were also – the Cold War had already begun. So Operation Paperclip was the secret program to spirit these scientists away without the U.S. public learning about it. And Werner von Braun was one of those men. And one of his men, his top man for the job, uh, was a man by the name of Heinz Hermann Koel. And over the next 90 days, uh, this gentleman divided up the project into pieces and assigned each part to a military department that was most suited, most well-suited to study it. The ABMA would evaluate the type of rockets and space vehicles that would be required. And then the Signal Corps would study the radio and communications needs and the Corps of Engineers would propose the best methods for constructing, maintaining, and expanding a habitable outpost on said moon. And see, they're compartmentalizing here. They're very intelligent. Intelligent in how they're doing this. None of the components know necessarily exactly what the others are doing. There's um, Bob Lazar, of all people, that we've discussed on this show before, a guy mm-hmm. who purportedly worked at Area 51 or near Area 51. I think it's Site 4 or something like that that's near Area 51. He recently went on the Joe Rogan show and he was discussing particularly this, the compartmentalization of studying something like this, how – uh, you'll get basically a title, kind of what we what we see when we look in the DARPA website. Uh-huh. Um, you get a title of a project and a one paragraph that tells you what that thing is. So you'll know that, okay, someone over here in this project is studying the propulsion system. Somebody over here is studying um, aerodynamics, you know, part of this if you're mm-hmm. going to, let's say, create a flying saucer. Um, in this case, uh, Cole, Cole – no, Heinz, I, I like, Heinz I like Cole. Yeah, Cole. He's, he's doing this exact thing with building a moon base. Right, right. Uh, and he was an aeronautical engineer who made the first forays into the design of the rocket that we now know as the Saturn One. Wow. 
You cannot buy your own Saturn One. Again, thanks for writing back, NASA. I was just <laughs> curious. Uh, but you can buy a top-notch uh, Lego model based on it. Oh, and the company Saturn did make some fine vehicles for a while there. Funny you mention that. Yeah, I wrecked two of them. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's true. They will keep you alive. But, but back to Horizon. So the final report which was titled Project Horizon U.S. Army Study for the Establishment of a Lunar Military Post was given to the Pentagon in June of 1959 in two volumes. The first was a summary that said the presented the main conclusions mm-hmm. of, of what we would want to do, the high-level thing, right, the one the execs would read. And the second gives a longer and more detailed analysis. And we'll tell you what was in this report after a word from our sponsors. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. 
Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Okay, so first things first. This is written during the Cold War. This is top secret. If you told most of the world, hi, we're going to take over the moon, we're going to put nuclear weapons on it, uh, you know, USA, USA, the world would not react well. So they emphasize the secrecy, but also they emphasize the grave nature of the problem. This is very, um, this is phrased as a inevitable, indeed the only path to salvation for the United States or to continued stability. And they say the political implications of our failure to be first in space are a matter of public record. This failure has reflected adversely on United States scientific and political leadership to some extent. We have recovered the loss. However, once having been second best in the eyes of the world's population, we are not now in a position to afford being second on any other major step in space. The results of failure to first place man on an extraterrestrial base will raise grave political questions and at the same time lower U.S. prestige and influence. There you go. I imagine uh, a general perhaps pacing back and forth again in a giant room filled with, with officials and scientists and other military personnel just giving that uh, speech. I get a very Dr. Strangelove vibe yeah. out of this because this sort of answers – the question that I posed originally, which is why would you focus on the moon when there are so many things we could fix here on Earth? And they've, they've changed the, the nature of the argument say, to say that if we want to fix anything on Earth, we have to – for the, the respect – yeah. You know, we have to – Ben's doing respect. double mafia hands yeah, right yeah. now. Thank you. Thank you for the respect. We have, to, we have to get to the moon. We've been number two on several of these other big things, uh, the first satellite, the first successful, you know, lunar orbiting. First person in space to return. Yeah. I mean, they're like, guys – we need that base now. And, and who knows how many other cosmonauts were just the first people in space who didn't make it back, right? Yeah. So then the report turns to the question whether a crude moon base with actual people on it is something that we can afford and something that we could actually do. Yeah. So if money is no object, can we think our way around this? If money is an object, the conversation always turns to it eventually, then how much money is – too much? How much yeah. is just enough? Well, yeah, the first – when you're thinking about something as high level and conceptual as this, the first thing you do is, well, if we were going to use everything that's available to us right now, all the technology, uh, how much would it cost, right? That's the that's one of the major things. How much would it cost using this stuff and would that make sense for us? It made the assumption like when it was first starting out, this Project Horizon, that they would be able to use existing technology to do everything, at least in the beginning. Yes. 
in the beginning. That's that's where everything seems so great, you know. Yeah, in the beginning. But but here's the thing: they're already working on some technology that wasn't currently available. It was basically the R and D side of what we imagine propulsion will be like. Mm-hmm. Um, the the dude uh, Cole Cole Coel he whatever whoever's Herman. Uh, yeah. He was he was working on a liquid hydrogen rocket, a, f- a liquid hydrogen fueled rocket that could potentially get us there, and um, and again they're going back to this idea that we have to make the entire thing modular, starting out uh, really small. So the first time we land there on the moon and we're going to start an outpost, we put a tiny little thing down there that's not going to be fully functional, essentially. It's just going to be a little outpost mm-hmm. um, that we're going to continue to build each time we go back. We're not just going to get there and plant a base on the moon. And we're also not going to throw anything away if we can help it. It'll all eventually become a piece of this outpost, right? Exactly. So the idea here is that they could start getting their collective ducks in a row in 1964, and they even thought about how this would be designed. The basic building block for the outpost would be these metal cylindrical tanks, three meters or 10 feet in diameter and 20 feet or 6.1 meters long. And two nuclear reactors would also be built there. They're building nuclear – well, they're transporting nuclear reactors. They have to – they're – it's weird. They're not building it. It feels like Legos to me, like nuclear reactor parts that you kind of – put into place. Right. Ikea-style assembly. Mm -hmm. But did you ever play that – let's think about it this way. Did you ever play that game where you had to have a relay with an egg in a spoon? Yes. I had never done with the (laughs) egg. That's a brutal variation. Ah. When you imagine running – either one will work, mouth or the spoon. Uh, Imagine – Oh, no. I'm sorry. Holding the spoon in your mouth is what I meant. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, either way, imagine – Imagine that egg is a nuclear bomb and imagine the run is running from Earth to the moon. That's insane. That's what that's what they were proposing. Yeah. And then they were going to – again, it's so crazy to me. It's not even getting to the moon. It's the last jump from the orbit of the moon to the surface of the moon with a, with a nuke or a nuclear – at least nuclear material. Um material that is radioactive in that way. Right. So the idea was, okay, we'll figure out the details. We'll we'll take these nuclear reactors. They'll provide shielding and power for the operation of the initial quarters and the equipment we use to make the permanent facility. We'll use every empty cargo or propellant container to store more supplies life essentials and of course weapons. Shh, don't tell anyone. Got to have those space guns. Got to have your space guns, yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, what they didn't have lasers, you mm-hmm. know. They, was, they were really developing guns that could fire in space. As we learned uh, in another episode, yes. there was a pistol, right, on board with the, uh, with the Apollo program? Yeah, there was a pistol with the Apollo program with the lander. Yes. Right. Just in case. Yeah, and I think cosmonauts had something like that too if they landed in territory where they might be attacked by wildlife. Oh, so it was really about coming back to Earth, right? It was about coming back. It was about coming back. But they knew they would have to have some kind of weapon, if not a projectile weapon. They would have to invent yeah. something. That's a big wink there, by the way. 
just for me. <laughs> that was in case they were aliens. I'm just saying. Yes, yes. Uh, they had two types of surface vehicles. One was lifting, digging, scraping, because naturally you would end up mining, right, for long-term viability. Another was for extended distance trips, a little lunar road trip, you know, hauling, reconnaissance, rescue, um, maybe a great sound system. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Just playing music across the whole of the moon. Mm-hmm. And they, they, had a, they had this mapped out in phases, as you said. At the conclusion of the construction phase, the original camp quarters would be converted into a laboratory and the basic outpost – just to get the basic stuff that we've already talked about, would need about 150 launches, specifically with Saturn rockets. 150 launches. Didn't quite get there. Yeah. That's uh, so many. And, we, you know, we were talking with Marshall on our Mars episode. Marshall Brain, yes. About how many trips it would essentially take to get all the equipment and personnel out there. And it was a lot, but – the simple proposition of saying we need to launch rockets that cost X amount of dollars 150 times in order to establish this moon base. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. And then also another 64 launches every year to keep it supplied and to rotate crew members back and forth. So the idea was that in a perfect world, the people wouldn't be spending their entire lives keeping nuclear weapons at the ready on the moon. Yeah. Yikes. See, that's the tenuous grip, though. We managed as a species to officially do this kind of trip only six times. Yes. Ever. With a tiny crew. And in the post-World War II economic boom of the U.S., getting people to the moon now. Like what happens if you're on the moon and nuclear war breaks out in the U.S. or, you know, in the world – Entire, right? Yeah. What do you do? I guess you start counting how many days or months worth of food you have left? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this case, you're talking about 10 to 20 personnel that they wanted to have in this base at any time. And that's a minimum. They wanted a minimum of 10 to 20 personnel mm -hmm. to run this thing. Um, I don't know. They, they also started game planning how to survive – on-the-ground attacks from Soviet forces. They yes. Wanted, yeah, they wanted to surround this thing with Claymore mines that would poke holes in pressure suits. Ooh, yeah. that sounds scary. They also wanted to have the, give the inhabitants small sub-kiloton nuclear weapons, similar to things that were used in anti-tank weapons called Davy Crockett's that were already existed. They were already in play. And the idea was that they could use these to blow up Soviet moon tanks. Yeah, so they had anti-personnel uh, tactics to defend, also uh, anti-vehicle tactics. And, you know, they're, they're really, again, like it's this, um, it's this conceptual thinking of war on the moon. That's really what they're imagining. They're using it for, you know, or at least they're imagining it as a, as a weapon in itself, this moon base, uh -huh. but as well as – treating it like a military outpost. It's so odd to me, but I guess it makes complete sense. And of course, speculation runs rife with this. They're planning anti-personnel weaponry and they say it's for the Soviet 
army, but the Soviet army, as far as they know, doesn't have the technology to do this. So going back to your question, Matt, who are they really planning to defend themselves against? It's a great unknown. Yeah, so those moon rocks. I have sound gardens. The entire time I was working on this, I had sound gardens, spoon man stuck in my head, but it was moon man. And I think it would be a worthwhile parody. Is that Spoon Man? Yeah. Come together with your hands. <laughs> spoon <Face> Man. <laughs> Moon Man. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. And we're sued. No, no. I'll write the lyrics as fair use as, okay. a, as a parody if we write the whole thing, okay, which okay. I'm fine doing. Uh, the So let's talk turkey. Let's talk space turkey, nuclear space turkey. How much did this – how much would this cost actually? So the total cost for the basic structure of the study – concluded would run in the neighborhood of $6 billion. That's in modern dollars, uh, roughly 700 mil per year. Um, the study also made a note that this was not much more than the U.S. was already spending on its nuclear missiles program. So it's a win-win. Hey. And I'm calling BS on those calculated numbers from oh, 1958. Sure. I think it's easily three or four times that. Easily, easily. I mean, you get private companies involved. It's this it's tale as old as time, you know. This is the land of $300 hammers. Right? Yeah. How, wait, what was the estimate? I know I figure you might know this, at least the ballpark estimate of building the wall, like that, that whole thing. I think it was in the like tens of billions of dollars, right? Like 40, it was something crazy. 20, Which wall? The uh, border wall um, during the 2016 election. Oh, there were there were a yes. bunch of estimates that occurred back around around that time. And if you're just imagining building essentially concrete and rebar structure, or you know whatever oh, material oh, is built out of on Earth, on Earth, now you're going to build a structure on the moon, uh, even with today's rocket technology. Um, wow. So here's the question: Did they really? Build it, they being the U.S. Is that the stuff they don't want you to know? In the end, it looks like the same international politics that inspired Project Horizon also led to its early death. Neither President Eisenhower nor Soviet Premier Khrushchev wanted to spend tons and tons of money for a new arms race in outer space when they were already so busy waging multiple proxy wars on Earth. So they started negotiating treaties and agreements, reaching the, reaching the consensus that stands today, at least officially, which is there shall be no nuclear weapons in space. No nation can claim a celestial body as its national territory. We will see how long that holds. We'll see how long that is the case. As far as we know now, there is no permanent base, no permanent crude base on the lunar surface. Again, as far as we know, Horizon never progressed past the feasibility stage. Eisenhower rejected it, and the primary responsibility for America's space program was transferred to NASA, which is, of course, a civilian agency. While there may not be any current proof of a permanent nuclear base today, recently leaked documents reveal that no matter what was said at the time, the U.S. government, Uncle Sam, never, ever stopped thinking about building a moon base. Secretly, when the microphones are off and, and things are closed at the Pentagon and people are just hanging out, secretly, the U.S. still very much wants to build 
a base on the moon and, furthermore, is planning to do so. They're worried now that new players have entered the game. And that's what brings us to a little thing called Project Artemis. Right, yes. Or just Artemis. Let's just go Artemis. So the Greek god Apollo, for whom NASA's Apollo program was named, Apollo had a twin sister named Artemis. And NASA's pitch on this is that this will be the banner under which humans return to the moon. The Artemis program was unveiled by NASA in mid-May, and the idea is that it will put astronauts on the lunar surface in 2024. Preparations have already begun, but the problem is we don't know how how certain how uh, we don't know how certain it is that this will actually come to pass. So. NASA is setting the maiden flight of its space launch system for next year, 2020, as we record this. It's a giant booster. It's taller than a 30-story building. It'll blast a crew capsule called Orion on an uncrewed mission to the moon and back. They're doing a dry run. And then in 2022, they will have a test with up to four astronauts. And then after that, they'll construct a small space station orbiting around the moon And then they'll dock a lunar lander in 2024, assuming the world hasn't burned down by then. (laughs) And then that same year in 2024, they'll have four astronauts fly in the Orion capsule to the station, get on board the lander, descend to the lunar surface. And then for the next three, three to four years, they continue to do that. And then they're really building a base. And one of the biggest problems, the issues, uh, as tends to happen with space exploration, and I would say with NASA budgets in general, is this this thing that we call sticker shock. It's, you know, we have all these aspirations to do these incredible things, but the moment that we realize exactly how much it's going to cost, everybody, and especially Congress, because you've got elected officials, uh, you know, in the House of Representatives, the Senate, they see that kind of thing and they think, well, how – how are we going to convince the American people that this is worth it? We even run into that with a podcast sometimes, you know? Certainly, with everything, because you, it is, you really have to take it into consideration. In this case, I guess the, the biggest pro-con thing that you put up there is if it does cost this much, we have to be at least achieving something that is worthwhile for us, both as investors and as a species. And uh, sometimes it's tough to see that. Right. And then there's that argument about private versus public ability or infrastructure, right? We know that there are a lot of private companies who have taken up the flag of state-supported space exploration agencies and they're making making some serious progress. But do they have enough heft to get to the moon? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a tough one. It really is. And let's just get back to that price that we talked about with Project Horizon, that initial mm-hmm. estimate from 1958 saying that it would cost in what what is nowadays, now dollars, the entire program was going to cost around $6 billion, roughly $700 million a year no for, way, throughout though. the life of the project. There's no way, but that was the estimate, right? Yeah. So uh, we're looking at an Ars Technica article where they're, they're citing sources that have told them that the internal projected cost is – Six to eight billion dollars per year, rather right. rather than per the life, because we're talking about a project that spans from today, uh, two thousand nineteen, until twenty twenty eight. 
Um, that's a lot of money. And uh, that's on top of the already existing budget that NASA works with, which is $20 billion per year. Right, right. Which again, they have problems getting funding for that a lot of the time. So let's be clear about that. According to the internal estimates, the cost of the Artemis project is not six to eight billion a year. It's twenty six to twenty eight billion a year. Which what? is which is because of the NASA budget, which is twenty. Yeah, got it. Yeah. So so it's it's sticker shock for sure. The question is if it's worth it. If there is a possibility of building a sustainable lunar colony of any sort, then there is – there's literally no price you can put on it. There is no way to equate in numbers. No more capitalistic people hate this idea that some things can't be bought. But there is no way to equate with numbers the value of having a second franchise of humanity. Just in case. Just in case or in many cases, but arguably just before yeah. the old house burns down. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that – I'm not saying that earth is doomed, but I am saying it is good to have some insurance. We're not doing a real great job at making sure we try and keep everything running swell down here. That's true. We're also we're, – we're also uh, pretty in the dark still about – how people would uh, – how a human population would reproduce and grow in a lunar environment. Yeah. The the gravity is so much lower. You're exposed to a ton of radiation. We don't know – we've never seen a child created and born on the moon. There are a lot of unknowns and 26 to $28 billion is, uh, is a high price to pay. For for I mean, what if we what if we do all this? What if our species does all this, and it turns out that for one unforeseen reason or another, it is completely impossible for people to live on the moon. Can can we just um, just to that point, Ben, of how long people would need to be on the moon to really understand having a child there? You know, having generations who live on the moon for at least an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about the length. That the crew of Apollo 17, the final Apollo mission, actually stayed on the moon at one time. How long was it? 74 hours, 59 minutes, 38 seconds. That is the longest amount of time anyone has spent on the moon. So we're basing it (laughs) – that's what we're basing it on. A crazy weekend on the moon. (laughs) It's like when someone goes to Las Vegas for a weekend and they say, I love it here. I want to live here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, albeit that's with suits and technology from the late 60s, early 70s. But still, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. The human body, how well is it going to do for months at a time if you've got a, you know, a stint on the moon? The human body is custom made for a very specific environment. That's a problem. And when you first said – that was with the suits and technologies at the time. I thought we were still talking about Vegas. So. <laughs> Got you. We've been through this before, I think, but you two would were, would both be game for a moon stint, right? Yes. I. It's a the calculus is a little different now that I have wife and son, but right. I think if he was a game, my wife was game. Mm-hmm. We would do a family lunar mission, a moon stint. Yeah, you have the first moon boy. That's right. 
Moon Boy, Ryder. You're going to do this. Moon Boy is also an obscure uh, Marvel Comics character. So, Oh, uh, TM, Ryder. Sorry, we can't use that. Uh, we'll, have to, <laughs> we'll have to get a different one. He can be uh, Lil Moon Rock. <gasps> That's not bad. Done. All right, cool. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I'd do it just for fun. If we were living in sort of a scorched earth post-apocalyptic uh, situation, I think I would give it a go. But um, I don't think I would just do it, you know, for kicks. I hear you. Absolutely. Let us know what you would do. Also, let us know whether you think there is any possibility of a, a secret actual lunar base existing now. And if so, why? I could see maybe a secret – uncrewed thing, you know what I mean, one that is not populated with human beings. But if you think there's one that has living creatures on it and they don't have to be human, we'd love to hear more and we'd love to hear your uh, your exploration of why. You can tell us by finding us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also, as we mentioned at the top of the show, call us directly. We are one eight three three stdwytk That was a little odd. We put some – Put some tonality to it, but I kind of enjoyed it. I've been adding the tonality lately. Oh, okay. It's sort of a secret, like, subcarrier kind of thing. It's got, like, subliminal messages on it. Dope. Hey, find us on Instagram, where we're Conspiracy Stuff Show. That's right. You can find me on Instagram individually at Brown if you so choose. You can find me getting kicked into and out of various places at Ben Bolin. Uh, I'm just going to plug the new shows, <laughs> um, uh, Monster Presents Insomniac, as well as Noble Blood, because those are two brand new shows, rather than my Instagram, because I don't have one. Sorry, guys. Congratulations, Matt, on those new shows, by the way. Hey, thanks. I did minimal things, but I made it happen. We're gonna you're, you're what they call a facilitator, Matt. That's right. We're going to have uh, our own Scott Benjamin making a return appearance on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Long, long, long time friend of the show. One of the few people who's been working here as long as we have. That's right. He's going to come on and tell us all about Monster Presents Insomniac. And it's going to be fascinating. And you're going to find out hopefully a little bit more about the three of us and uh, how we sleep. Is that weird? Maybe. Maybe it's weird. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Do you think we'll get anything out of you, Ben? <laughs> so thank you so much, as always, to Paul Mission Control Decant. And if you are, like many of our fellow listeners, saying, guys, I have a great story I want to tell you, or I have experience with NASA, or I have experience with some other space program, and I've got some real stuff they don't want you to know, but I hate social media. And I hate phones. Why would I call someone on the phone? Well, we have some good news for you. You can still contact us with a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.